You're listening to the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lexington podcast. Take a moment to center yourself in this space and enjoy this week's sermon. Our, our reading this morning is a, a video instead. Um, many of you are familiar with Brene Brown, who is a social worker who has become quite prominent in recent years, talking about compassion, empathy, vulnerability. This particular is a dialogue about the difference between empathy and sympathy. So there we are. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. (laughs) Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here. And you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh uh-huh. No. You want a sandwich? Uh, Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I have it. Yeah. And we do it all the time, because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. I rarely watch cable news these days, though my husband would say it's too much anyway. And I was recently watching cable news as what's happening in Israel and Palestine is unfolding. And the anchors for that particular story that morning said, and there's all these little disclaimers on the screen, we're warning you what you're about to see is completely graphic and horrible and awful and all the disclaimers of what's going to happen. And I was just like, okay, I will sip my morning coffee and proceed and watch what's going to unfold here. And what unfolded 
were images of what had happened to individual human beings in the wake of what's unfolding in that region of the world. And a doctor, an Israeli doctor, held up a bag filled with white dust and said, we believe this contains three, four, maybe five people. My response was numbness. I didn't feel anything. I changed the channel. I fled from what I was seeing and moved on with my day. It wasn't until about three days later, I was sitting at my computer at home. I think I was playing a video game of some sort and all of a sudden waves of emotion overtook me. I started crying for no reason at all. And the only thing I could think of was it finally landed what I had seen, what I was witness to. Lately, mental health researchers, and not just lately, but stretching back to the 80s, have noted, noted a sharp decline in empathy in our culture since 1989, noting that that decline mostly impacts Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z. As an older millennial, I've been increasingly interested in how my generation has come into its own or, or not, and how the world we grew up in shaped us. But what is empathy? Well, the video you just saw defined it for you. But here's a quick reminder. Empathy is connecting with people so that we know we're not alone when we're in struggle. Empathy is a way to connect to the emotion another person or community is experiencing. And it doesn't require that we have experienced the same situation that they're going through. I feel that part is important. Sometimes we're told empathy or compassion means we have to fix it. We have to get busy fixing or be in the muck. But no, we just need to open up our ability to connect. What I was experiencing was an inability to connect. But back to the problem at hand. This piece about empathy has me wondering. Because I don't know about you. We've talked about this a lot. I've noticed a lot of anger out there. A lot of anger and refusing to take on perspectives, diminishing the pain of others, trying to rationalize policies and positions that destroy people's lives, and so on and so on. And I don't think it's just limited to the generations I named. However, in those studies, they noted that millennials specifically are one of the first generations to not significantly improve their lives compared to their parents. There's increased debt, especially student loan debt. The stories of working a job during college to pay your tuition are long gone. The cost of health care is extraordinary. There's difficulty finding a job with a college degree. Oh, and yes, difficulty finding a job with a master's and a doctorate too, or even several degrees. What some of these researchers have noted is that with all of that, millennials have turned inward. They go into survival mode. They just focus on trying to make it in the world. It's not just about being rude or uncaring. It's about surviving. If you want my opinion, it's not just millennials. It's across the board in 2023. No generation is untouched. 
Dr. Sarah Conrath, in her research on empathy out of the Interdisciplinary Program on Empathy and Altruism at Indiana University, she sees a correlation between the rise in both mental health crises and a lack of empathy. She says that the two are related to one another, not necessarily the cause of one another. And they both feed into burnout, deep, wide, life-changing burnout. She says our major crisis here is burnout. And a path toward helping ease burnout is taking care of our mental health, right? Engaging in pro-social activities, or in other words, giving ourselves opportunities to exercise our empathy. Easy enough, just those two things. Let's go do it. Let's fix the world. It's easy enough when you have an eight-hour workday, eight hours of leisure, and eight hours of sleep. Dr. Conrath shared that 888 model with college students just before the pandemic, and they thought it was a joke. They started laughing at her because those days are no longer with us. Along with that is a decline in hobbies. A lot of people just don't have hobbies anymore. Learning instruments, reading books, and just plain being social. It's a clear recipe for reinforcing a culture that lives to only work. Many of you have read the book Bowling Alone, which was published by Robert Putnam in 2001, where he was laying out where we're heading. And researchers like Sarah Conrath are only beginning to understand just how bad it is. Now, I trust we've all seen or heard about the turmoil post-COVID, whatever that term really means about work-life balance. Downtown areas across our country are a pale comparison to their former selves. San Francisco is probably the most famous example with a catastrophic rise in both homelessness and abandoned buildings. And still with all of that, all of that extra real estate, people still cannot afford to live there. Minneapolis, another example, my hometown of Chicago, New York, LA, and so on, all experiencing their own form of this phenomenon. What I see in here when I look at this is a real struggle to return to the way things were, to give in to the pressures that were before COVID-19. Is work-life balance good in our country? No. Is there a move to improve it? I hope. In my own profession, that of being a minister today, only one in four seminarians want to work in a congregation. The rest want nothing to do with it. We have an extreme shortage of ministers and other religious professionals. And those who do enter congregational ministry, their tenure is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And those that are leaving the profession entirely is increasing. The heart of that is that a job like mine and so many other jobs can become a 24-7 ordeal. I share this with you not to kvetch about being a minister, right? I'm not. I would still be the one in four in seminary because I love working in a congregation. I share this because it's not unique to me. It's in so many areas of our life right now. People are pushing back and struggling with demands to return to the way it was. Many of us are refusing to live only to work, to be mistreated by our jobs, to give in to burnout, where we suffer greatly and our connections to others are broken. 
How many of you know what that intimately feels like, what burnout is? Right? So what do we do about that? You can watch a video from Brene Brown again if you like, right? But I want to be clear. Like anything that requires emotional work, it's not a one, two, three process. And I know there's so many mental health professionals in the room, right? It's not a one, two, three. It's messy and it requires cultivation. And that's hard because I'm someone who always believes there's a step, a list of steps and a discipline that I could follow to fix something. To fix something in my life to clear up some sort of emotional upheaval and so on. And it turns out there is no Ikea instruction booklet for how to be a good human. <laughs> According to the Journal of Experimental Psychology, the first step on our path toward healing these feelings of burnout and increasing our empathy is a willingness to grow. Oh, just that, great. Willingness to grow, great. But more importantly, it's believing you can grow in the first place, that you're not done, that you're still learning. And if you struggle to take on the perspective of another person, you believe you can try and try and try and try again. The way we try to do this is, there's multitudes, right? We can expose ourselves to difference. When's the last time you watched a television show or a movie from another culture or listened to different music or tried a different food and so on and so forth? Exposing ourselves to difference has this magical effect of making our commonalities crystal clear, but also making our differences into something that isn't insurmountable. It may we may still be different from others, but we can share in that difference and grow in that difference. Now we get into some difficult territory. Ask yourself what is blocking you from having empathy. Maybe for yourself, for another person, or an entire group of people. What is blocking you? Is it you just don't wanna be around people you think are negative? People who always seem to have something going on someone from a specific culture or background, certain groups because they remind you of that one family member or that person who hurt you and so on, perhaps those of certain religious or political leanings. Back during our question box Sunday, it was early September, we do it every year where people ask me questions. One of the questions was, how have you become so empathic I looked at him like, I'm glad I didn't get asked that question. Because I struggle with that. I find it difficult to have empathy for fundamentalists or political beliefs that would hurt me or my family. For the people that hold those. I want to lock those folks out completely. But I've shared bits of this from my past recently. The times when I've gone out on a limb and worked through my discomfort, through those blocks in my mind, and I've been shown incredible, incredible hospitality by people I disagree with. Now, I would never knowingly put myself in harm's way. No one should do that. But for those interactions that would just make me uncomfortable, for 
any of us, there's an opportunity to work on our empathy skills. For me, it's moments like that where I try, but also have a very strong meditation practice. They have opened up connections I would never imagine. It's not enough to just work on ourselves, though. In a Unitarian Universalist congregation, we have ample opportunities to experience people with different beliefs. And if you can come to understand that every interaction, every interaction with someone, even if they have the same skin tone or they're from the same county in Kentucky as you, every interaction is a diverse interaction. There you go. It's important for us to see every interaction in such a way. To know that each encounter is an opportunity for us to learn and to grow individually and as a community, to broaden our horizon. That the things we often use in our society to lump ourselves into monolithic categories, those drive disconnection, both within those groups and beyond. Your life and experiences are not the same as mine. We come from different families different religious backgrounds, classes, cultures, and so on. The way to empathy is not in minimizing our differences, but in honoring them and celebrating them. And I believe that is part of our current upheaval. It's not all of it. Our cultural and political turmoil is so much larger than one thing. But a meaningful sliver of it is in dividing ourselves into these either-or categories this or that, us and them camps. That is feeding it. Now, we are built for empathy. We really are. I guarantee there is someone in this congregation right now that knows exactly the, the, the finer details of this. Some neuroscientists, we have a lot of doctors. But here's the basics. Here's what I can understand. Mirror neurons in our brains are the most obvious example of how we are built for empathy. When we see someone engaging in an action, if one of our musicians picks up their water bottle, the same neurons in their brain that push them to pick up that water bottle activate in my brain. Isn't that astounding? Absolutely astounding. We've evolved to take on the perspective of those we encounter in our very neurons, to feel what they feel, to be present. But so too our bodies crave it. When we make eye contact with someone, when we hear someone laugh or cry and we join with them, oxytocin, the hormone that facilitates social bonding, is released. Now that doesn't mean we're going to run around today going, I need my oxytocin fix, right? <laughs> Look into my eyes. <laughs> That'd be a little weird. <laughs> but what it does mean is we create a community and focus on nurturing a community that provides those connections for us. You can never force anyone to do anything, but you can create a welcoming space and let people know it's there for them. Now, it's really funny. The amount of conversations I've had with all of you about this in the past week, it's really weird. But sometimes the universe conspires. And here we are talking about something I planned months ago. It's all converging. 
on our hearts and our minds. We just welcome some wonderful new members into our community. And there are so many more of you that want to become part of this wonderful place. You don't have to wait, though. Jump right in. Because the energy here, I don't know if you've noticed, the energy here lately is astounding. I've never experienced our church life this busy in such a positive way in the over eight years I've served here as the minister. What that should tell each and every one of us is that what we need, what keeps us coming here to continually create and recreate community that lives and breathes, that's it. That's it right there. That's what we need. That's what we want. That's what's making this place come alive with compassion and dignity, connection to that interdependent web. Every decision we make as a congregation should foster deep connections in this community. And friends, I can't do it alone. I know I don't do it alone. But this is a call to you. If you've not yet found your place or you're looking to reconnect, because you've done everything before, talk to me. Talk to our board members. Talk to someone, anyone. Create those connections. Have that connection. Listen. Be present. Be listened to. And take that risk to go deeper in that connection here. Everything we do here is for that purpose. Everything. May it be so. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.ucl.org, where you can find more information about our grounds, staff, and upcoming events. You can also subscribe to our e-news there and learn about our virtual service offerings. We'll see you next week.